On this edition of Geopolitics and Empire, we interview professor and political geographer Klaus Dodds, who researches in the areas of geopolitics and security, media, popular culture, ice studies, and the international governance of the Antarctic and Arctic. He has worked for the UK Parliament as a special advisor, has won many awards, and has made an outstanding contribution to political geography and critical geopolitics. In fact, I recall being assigned some of Professor Dodd's books as a graduate student during my studies at the Geneva School of Diplomacy, and we'll be discussing the scramble for the polar regions and the geopolitics of the Arctic and Antarctic, and it's a great pleasure to have you on, Professor Dodds. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I'm delighted to be here, and thank you for the kind introduction. Now, if outer space is the final frontier, then perhaps we can say the polar region must be the second to last uh, frontier. And you begin your book on the geopolitics of the poles by briefly discussing the 1885 scramble for Africa, um, perhaps to, to give a comparison. And many countries today seem to be vying for a piece of the Arctic and Antarctic, and sometimes in silly ways. You wrote about how Canadian Prime Minister Stephen Harper tried to uh, appropriate uh, or use Arctic shipwrecks from the 1840s for national purposes, uh, as well as um, China now discussing uh, their polar rights, even though they're a good distance away from the, the North or South Pole. So can you start by telling us a little bit about this scramble for the poles? Yes, I mean, I, I think when I uh, talk about the scramble for the poles, I mean, I, I think I'm, I'm trying to think about this idea of scramble in a number of different ways. So on the one hand, as you rightly say, it, it invokes uh, previous scrambles, uh, notably, of course, the so-called scramble for Africa in the mid to late 19th century. So when, when we talk about scramble, we inevitably raise issues of empire and colonialism, and in particular, what large powers uh, have done and continue to do, uh, particularly in places that they think of as sort of frontier-like. But the other way I was thinking about scramble was to think of it more as a verb in terms of to scramble or scrambling. And I think that is particularly apt in the polar regions, because at, at this moment in time, they're undergoing, I think, both the geopolitical as well as a geophysical state change. So on the one hand, uh, we are bombarded with stories on a near daily basis telling us that the Arctic and the Antarctic are changing in unprecedented and even disturbing ways. You know, the retreat of Arctic sea ice uh, is probably emblematic here. Um, but on the other hand, uh, if we think about geopolitical scrambling, we seem to have uh, a new era in which uh, previously uh, barely thought about countries like China are increasingly reimagining themselves as polar powers. And so now it's very, very common uh, to hear Chinese speakers talk about China as a tripolar power and to produce maps that show China being active in the Arctic, the Antarctic, but also being actively interested uh, in Central Asian and uh, the sort of Him Himalayas as third pole. And in your book, you know, you've talked about statecraft, but as well as stagecraft and triumphant 
geopolitics. And I guess, you know, if you could talk a little bit about that, because I guess that's one of the ways that these countries can gain Arctic currency, so, so to speak. We've seen Canada uh, with the shipwrecks, uh, Russia planted their flag, I believe, at the bottom of the, was it the Arctic Ocean in 2007, which was symbolic. Uh, and it seems a lot of the vying for the polls translates to who has the nearest territorial claims, cultural claims, national identity claims, who has invested the most scientific research, and in general, who has the most uh, presence in, in any way uh, near the Arctic and Antarctic. So what can you say about uh, the stagecraft and triumphant uh, geopolitics and the importance uh, and effect they have? So I, th I, th I think one of the great things about the polar regions is that you can take these apparently exceptional spaces and actually trace through and think about um, things that actually have been remarkably normalized, but often perhaps overlooked or understated or perhaps taken for granted in, quote, more normal uh, looking and feeling spaces. Uh, say, in the temperate and uh, tropical world. So I think, for example, when I, when I use the term triumphant geopolitics, I'm, on the one hand, again, looking to someone like Joseph Conrad, who wrote in the 1920s that geography had these sort of three phases, a kind of exploratory phase, uh, a militant phase, which he thought was particularly evident in the 19th century during the so-called scrambles for Africa, Asia, and Latin America. And then what he described as a sort of triumphant phase. This was at the 20th century when actually there were far fewer places to discover, but actually what was happening was that states in particular were investing more and more effort and money to better map, chart, survey, uh, administer, these newly colonized spaces. I think in the polar regions, you also get a very, very vivid reminder that the symbolic really matters, that it's not just um, something peripheral or ephemeral, but actually the symbolism, for example, of a Russian flag being planted at the bottom of the Central Arctic Ocean is hugely important. You know, international lawyers might say, well, that means very little when it comes to, for example, the formal claiming of Arctic Ocean seabed. But we know that, for example, when images began to circulate of that Russian flag, uh, Canadian uh, ministers uh, were really quite alarmed that this event had transpired. You know, imagine the difference. I think sometimes here the counterfactual helps. Imagine the difference if the United Nations flag had been gently deposited on, on the bottom of the seabed. The Russian flag gave that image event a certain uh, urgency. And I think it also mattered because it coincided with increasingly a Russian discourse that centered around Russia being a resurgent great power. Uh, so, you know, if you swap the flag and have it as a thought experiment, you probably generate what we would call a different kind of affect. You know, the affect might have been less fearful and worrisome had the flag been different. And again, I think it just reminds us as well that in these uh, remote, thinly populated spaces, um, presencing, whether symbolic or actual, is hugely important. 
And let's talk about some of the goals uh, and the uh, objectives of governing those spaces and perhaps some of the prizes as well that these countries seek. Um, you know, we have things such as shipping and transport routes, uh, economically speaking. I, I believe just a few years ago, uh, there was the first unaccompanied transport ship that, that went through the Arctic uh, and was 40% quicker than going uh, through the Panama Canal, I think, from, from China. Um, you've got mineral extraction, military projections of power. In your book, you kind of center on six key drivers of the scramble and rescramble for the Arctic, which are globalization, securitization, polarization, legalization, uh, perturbation, and amplification. We don't have time to get into all six of those drivers, but perhaps we can start with the legal aspect. So if you can kind of give us a definition uh, of the legal regimes that govern these regions, there's the 1959 Antarctic Treaty System, I believe. We have the Arctic uh, Council and the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. And a lot of it is, is still out in the open, uh, I believe, or not really delineated. So could you talk about the legal? Aspect. Yeah, so I think the, the most important thing to stress is that the legal regimes pertaining to the Arctic and the Antarctic are both shared and distinct. So the bit that is shared is that the maritime regions in the Arctic and in the Antarctic, in other, in other words, the Southern Ocean, are governed by the provisions of the law of the sea. Now, that doesn't mean that other legal regimes uh, and legal conventions don't make their presence felt. But for the purpose of this discussion, it's important to say that the law of the sea, um, which entered into force in 1994, after many, many years of negotiation in the 1970s and 1980s, is effectively uh, a blueprint for the oceans. Both, and that includes the polar oceans. The Antarctic, of course, without an indigenous human population, has by and large been governed by the provisions of the 1959 Antarctic Treaty, uh, notably, uh, which includes a provision that says that in order to secure international cooperation and generally goodwill, uh, the claimant states, and there are seven of them who stake a claim to the Antarctic, agree to suspend uh, their claims for the duration of the treaty in order to foster goodwill and cooperation. It's really important to say in the Antarctic that although there are seven countries, including my own country, the United Kingdom, that claims a stake to the Antarctic, very few countries in the world recognize those claims as legitimate. So, for example, China would far more likely see the Antarctic as a global common as it would uh, a continent currently claimed by seven claimant states. The Arctic, of course, is an ocean surrounded by continents, and there are five Arctic Ocean coastal states, Russia and Canada being the largest, and there are really uh, a few pockets of the central Arctic Ocean in particular, which would be considered international waters under the provision of the law of the sea. All of which is to say, simply put, is the Arctic and Antarctic are distinct geographical legal spaces. And when I termed uh, this, this notion of legalization, what I was really getting at was how law creates spaces, but also law creeps, it extends, it expands. So for example, even today, when we talk about the central Arctic Ocean, 
it has a sort of legal characteristic to it. To talk about the Central Arctic Ocean is to talk about a distinct maritime space that has emerged uh, as a consequence of the activities of those neighboring coastal states. So as those coastal states have pushed their sovereign rights ever further into, if you like, the Arctic Ocean, into the waters of the Arctic Ocean, into the seabed of the Arctic Ocean. So it's helped to generate a new sense of the central Arctic Ocean as international waters. And if they're international waters, it means that they then become a global concern. And that's really important. So what law does, law creates spaces, but also those spaces are incredibly varied. So you can't say that law just gets applied uniformly over the Arctic and the Antarctic. There are really subtle and also profound differences. So legalization is kind of getting at that process, which is not necessarily fixed. It, it can and is dynamic. So that's a long way of saying that these drivers that I'm talking about are very, very dynamic. Um, they're not fixed and they're subject, therefore, to change. And before we talk a little bit about the military and security aspect, I'd like to ask about the energy and environmental um, aspects. And you've cited Michael Clare, uh, who's uh, written that I believe there are 13% of the world's petroleum reserves are estimated to be in at the poles and 30% of natural gas. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, your book uh, mentioned $230 billion annually uh, of um energy exploited from the Arctic being produced. And you wrote a piece last summer about the Antarctic Treaty, which is set to expire, I believe, in 2048, and how they might uh, they might remove, th repeal the treaty, the article that prohibits mining uh, at the Antarctic. So that can cause uh, a lot of issues there. So can you talk about the environmental threats and the exploitation uh, that might keep pushing ahead in the future? So I think that there are lots of things to um, disentangle here. But in, in essence, in, in, in the case of the Arctic, the vast majority of the known resources of the Arctic, such as hydrocarbons like oil and natural gas, are either on land or contained within the exclusive economic zones of countries like Russia, Canada and the United States alongside Norway. So whether we think further oil and gas exploitation in the Arctic or anywhere else in the world because of climate change is a good thing, is obviously uh, a topic for a, another day, I suspect. But in the Arctic context, uh, the vast majority of the known potential and the unknown potential of the Arctic lies within the purview of those Arctic Ocean coastal states. Russia in particular has tied its economic and political future to oil and gas exploitation. And that's why Arctic shipping, for example, along what the Russians call the Northern Sea Route, which is at the top end of the Russian uh, Federation, is so important because particularly natural gas has to be transported elsewhere. And for Russia, it makes strategic uh, sense to work with partners wherever they can find them, including China, to make sure that those resources are exploited. 
You know, the Russian economy is a resource-based economy, and oil and gas exploitation uh, has been identified in the Arctic as strategically essential to that country. In the Antarctic, uh, really since the 1959 Antarctic Treaty, but more importantly, the so-called Environmental Protocol, which entered into force in 1998, Article 7 says that there shall be no mining in the Antarctic. Now, it is true that in 2048 onwards, it is possible under the terms and conditions of the protocol to potentially reverse some of the provisions of the protocol, including Article 7. When I wrote that piece last year, I was not assuming that in 2048, mining was going to be uh, somehow uh, just uh, easily accepted and that the provisions would be tossed to one side. But what I was trying to do was to alert readers to the fact that we should not assume that the Antarctic is always going to be this uh, proverbial wilderness paradise where only scientists and a few tourists will uh, make uh, their tracks and presence felt. You know, for countries like China, uh, Russia and others, the Antarctic is also considered to be a resource. So when it comes to fishing in the Southern Ocean, Ru the Russians and the Chinese in particular look uh, very suspiciously at attempts by predominantly Western countries to impose restrictions. Uh, restrictions, for example, in the form of marine protected areas. And what I was simply saying was that the kind of, if you like, difficulties we've seen over marine protection in the Southern Ocean could eventually come on shore. But that is to assume all kinds of things, like, for example, Antarctic mining would be profitable, desirable, feasible, and so on and so forth. But we just have to be alert that countries do think about these things. And could we talk a little little bit about the securitization aspect, the militant geopolitics in the Arctic, uh, and the prioritization of, in the past at least, of national security regarding scientific endeavors? Uh, you've mentioned some interesting historical um, incidents in your in your book, such as the U.S. project Iceworm, which sought to build a nuclear powered city with ICBMs in northern Greenland, uh, and. Antarctica has, as you say, been ag agreed upon as a zone of peaceful and uh, scientific research, non-militarized. And so what can you tell us is important of the Cold War history regarding the militarization? And in the future, is there any potential for a security or military clash between any of the powers? I think the most important thing to say about the polar regions, particularly during the Cold War period, so from, let's for argument say, say the late 1940s to the late 1980s, uh, the Cold War really, really made itself felt uh, in the Arctic in particular, but also more uh, tangentially in the Antarctic. In the Arctic, uh, Russia and the United States effectively faced off uh, in the northern latitudes. And that had all kinds of really important, at times dire, implications uh, for indigenous and northern communities and northern ecologies. So, for example, we had outlandish plans to hide nuclear missiles under the Greenlandic ice sheet, as Project Iceworm uh, was, uh, would attest to. 
we had nuclear testing uh, in places like uh, Siberia, in the Arctic islands, uh, and of course in Alaska. And indeed, those kinds of plans in Alaska led to the creation of uh, Greenpeace in the late 1960s as a kind of protest movement. Uh, we also had nuclear accidents in the Arctic. Um, you know, so there is a kind of history uh, and a legacy of militarization and securitization for many, many years. Um, there were many parts of the Arctic that were simply inaccessible to citizens uh, because of the security concerns. And of course, it's worth remembering as well that unlike today, when we talk about ships crisscrossing uh, the Arctic, uh, in those days, it was nuclear-powered submarines and icebreakers that were doing most of that work in terms of crossing the Arctic Ocean. So those, those legacies are really important. In the Antarctic, yes, the Antarctic Treaty effectively created a nuclear-free zone, and it also demilitarized the continent to a large extent. But that didn't stop people planning, thinking about, worrying about the militarization of Antarctica. And that continues today. So, for example, uh, usually any time China is mentioned, either in the context of the Arctic or the Antarctic, then there is a kind of accompanying fear that China might be seeking to secretly militarize uh, the Antarctic uh, through its logistical activities, through building research stations uh, and so on. So I think it's, it's really important to see the Arctic and Antarctic as not divorced from broader global geopolitics. And the Cold War really illustrates that well. And I believe I've heard you uh, say that the 21st century polar geopolitics will be dominated by East Asian states. Is that correct? And why, why would you say that? Well, I think the point I was trying to make was that I think East Asian states, uh, China, Korea, Japan, um, even Singapore, uh, and of course India, uh, have made it uh, very, very clear that the polar regions are of considerable interest to them. And I think they, they argue that for all kinds of good reasons. One of the things that I think is really important to bear in mind, and the polar regions demonstrate this well, is that we have this tension between the interests of what I would call territorially rooted states, like Russia and Canada in the Arctic, and what I would think of as, as countries like China and Korea and India that argue that they are territorially uh, connected or teleconnected to uh, the Arctic through things like climate change and sea level rise. So it's very common, for example, for uh, Chinese presenters to say, we are a near Arctic state. The Arctic does matter to us because if Arctic sea ice continues to melt and, uh, and Antarctic uh, ice sheets continue to melt, then we will uh, feel the implications of sea level change uh, in our low-lying cities and regions of China. Uh, but also weather patterns uh, will continue to be disrupted. So in a sense, the Arctic is integral to our national security, you know, to our, our sense of uh, what a secure future will look and feel like. And that can be really unsettling for countries uh, that have historically 
seen the Arctic and Antarctic as exceptional, remote, and largely their own spaces uh, to organize uh, affairs around. So that can be unsettling for countries like Canada in the Arctic, and it can be unsettling for uh, countries like Australia, New Zealand, Argentina, Chile, even the United Kingdom, because, of course, we have overseas territories in places like the Falkland Islands and South Georgia. So we would see ourselves as a, quote, local state. Um, so I think when I talk about the rise of East Asian states, I think it's simply to note that these are, are important security actors as well as scientific actors that we wouldn't have really talked about very much in the 20th century, but we are certainly going to talk about them much, much more in our current century. And what can you tell us about some of the South American uh, countries and, and their participation in all of this, uh, such as Chile? And I believe recent, in recent years, Argentina uh, has been discussing territorial claims at the Antarctic, even though the ATS uh, forbids it. So what can you uh, enlighten us uh, about regarding South America? Well, Chile, Chile and Argentina have had a, a very long-standing interest in Antarctica and the Southern Ocean. Um, Chile and Argentina uh, would argue that uh, the, their Antarctic territories are integral to their, their national uh, territory. So, and in part, that comes from a very strong sense of geological uh, connection. It comes about through geographical proximity, but it also comes about through a very profound sense that these spaces are part of a complex uh, post-colonial inheritance that it enjoys as a consequence of being once part of the Spanish Empire. So for Argentina and Chile, these are territories that are, are felt to be very, very much part of their national geographical imagination. Both countries um, have worked closely with one another. Uh, both countries um, have to uh, accommodate an awkward geopolitical fact, which is their national territories in the Antarctic overlap substantially with the British claim to the, to the region. Um, and both countries have also worked with South American neighbors like Brazil, for example, Ecuador, uh, Uruguay, to create a sort of South American bloc um, in the Antarctic Treaty system that tries to give a more sort of regional view about uh, how South American countries feel about the Antarctic. But Argentina has probably been the most uh, militant when it comes to uh, protecting its territorial claims and interests in the Antarctic. And one of the notable things that it did do was to um, submit materials to the UN, a UN body on continental shelves, which made it clear that it thought of the continental shelf off the Antarctic Peninsula as Argentine territory. And that was considered to be uh, not in the spirit, shall we say, of the Antarctic Treaty and the Antarctic Treaty system. So that probably was a, a, what we might reasonably to, to, uh, to sort of conclude was genuinely an awkward moment for others. If I'm not mistaken, I believe I read that you have personally taken trips out to uh, the polar regions. Uh, can you tell us about what that was like and how that 
would have helped your research and given you a more uh, authentic and better understanding of the region? Yes. I mean, I, I've been to the Antarctic four times, and each time I left from a South American port, uh, such as Ushuaia or Punta Arenas, um, and traveled by ship across the Drake's Passage, and then had the uh, pleasure of traveling up and down the Antarctic Peninsula and visiting islands like South Georgia and South Shetlands. Um, what it did for me was a number of things. I think, first of all, it was a, an amazing experience being on a series of ships traveling uh, between South America and Antarctica. But it also enabled me to see both current and abandoned research stations. It gave me a really powerful sense of the elemental forces at play shaping the Antarctic, you know, the intersection of ice, ocean, air, um, to get a, a feel of the, this really actually very complex place uh, was for me essential in terms of being a political geographer who was really rooted in experience, experiencing um, these, these amazing spaces. In the, in the Arctic, sorry, um, of course, it was a very different sort of experience because the thing that I was most keen to learn more about was actually the views and experiences of those who live and work in the Arctic. So one of the things I think as, as social scientists we have a responsibility to do is to dispel these really very commonplace mythologies that the Arctic is uninhabited, that the Arctic is a wilderness, uh, that the Arctic should just be some kind of uh, circumpolar nature reserve. People live and work in the Arctic. There are four million people there. You know, if you go to um, the archipelago of Svalbard, which is uh, a Norwegian territory uh, to the uh, due north of uh, Norway, you will see evidence of plenty of uh, an island or islands that, for example, once had a thriving coal industry. There was whaling, there was sealing, there was fishing. Uh, now, of course, increasingly there's tourism. But it, it's a reminder that the Arctic has been lots of different things, uh, including the industrial. The Russian Arctic would remind you of that. Uh, the Canadian Arctic, the uh, American Arctic, has also been punctuated uh, by na natural resource development. And I think it's really, really important that if you do have the opportunity to visit these places, you come away with a sense that they are dynamic, uh, they're diverse, and they're complex. So, for example, in uh, Nuuk, the capital of Greenland, uh, I remember having a very, very pleasant evening, uh, having dinner with a colleague in a, a Thai Greenlandic restaurant. Uh, there has been a Thai community uh, residing in Svalbard since the early 1970s. So in a sense, when we talk about Asia and the Arctic, uh, there are lots of different ways of thinking about how Asia and Asians have made their presence felt in that particular space. That's quite the temperature difference between Thailand and Greenland. <laughs> um, and so what, what would be your concluding, uh, any final thoughts that you have regarding the geopolitics uh, of the polar regions especially going forward in the next few decades? So, so I think the, the sort of the key, key messages I have, I think, would be, number one, 
um, the polar regions are not peripheral to global geopolitics. I think what we're going to see increasingly is broader geopolitical processes and uh, forces making themselves felt in the polar regions, but also then uh, being exported back to, if you like, other parts of the world. So I think we should uh, no longer see the polar regions as exceptionally isolated or disconnected. And that's probably the globalization bit uh, of the book when I talk about drivers. Climate change, number two, is here to stay and is increasingly going to make itself felt um, in places like the Arctic and Antarctic. And that will do lots of different things. It, it will literally scramble uh, the Arctic and Antarctic, all the kind of taken for granted assumptions we might have had in recent decades about the Arctic and Antarctic being cold, uh, being stable, being ice field places is going to shift. It's not going to shift overnight. After all, there is plenty of ice still in the Antarctic. But what we're seeing in the Arctic is literally uh, a space being made and actually remade, particularly as Arctic sea ice uh, retreats ever more, particularly in the summer season. I think thirdly, technology um, is going to make itself felt in the Arctic. There are both opportunities for corporations, people, states to make money uh, in technologically innovative ways, but also um, technology brings with it ever more possibility of exploitation uh, and extraction. So it's going to be a real test of our collective will to see whether, for example, we can resist the temptation to further exploit the Arctic, particularly for hydrocarbons and other forms of uh, minerals. And I, I think the final thing I will say is um, the Arctic is also going to be a really interesting test case for tracing through particularly how indigenous peoples make their presence felt uh, in, in the world uh, in, our, in the current uh, century. One of the things we've seen via the Arctic Council, which is an intergovernmental forum created in 1996, is actually a form of political experimentation where indigenous peoples have been given, I think, greater recognition than has uh, previously been the norm. Uh, indigenous peoples are also substantial landowners, resource owners. And one of the things I think the Arctic demonstrates well is that things also come out of the Arctic that aren't just climate change related. So indigenous peoples uh, and governments are also investors. They're also travelers. Things move back and forth um, from the Arctic and elsewhere. And I think we're going to see increasingly indigenous peoples around the world uh, being ever more vocal in terms of self-determination, uh, recognition, and also perhaps making decisions that we're going to be uncomfortable with. You know, it's perfectly possible that the government agreement will say, as we head ever closer towards independence, we are going to exploit ever more quantities of minerals such as uranium. And we do want to see oil and gas exploited 
And we're not going to be told we can't do this by other countries who are now suddenly very concerned about climate change. So I think uh, one of the things I would say for the future is that uh, the Arctic could really bring home some of the very obvious challenges we are going to face as a planet as we get ever closer to a population of 10 billion, possibly more, and we really begin to feel the consequences of not just climate change, but potentially climate breakdown. Now, people can find uh, your webpage, uh, your academic page at Royal Holloway, and there are listed numerous, your activities and a number of your publications, which are free for download, chapters from books, and you're also on Twitter. So again, are those the best places that people can follow you? Absolutely. And I, and I think what I would, I, I would say as well, which I'm really excited about, is in June 2019, uh, June of this year, uh, my co-author and I, Mark Nuttall, will also be publishing with Oxford University Press our new book, uh, which is called The Arctic, What Everyone Needs to Know. And I've, I think what it does is bring together, in a, I hope, an accessible and interesting way, some of the things that um, I've had the pleasure talking with you about. Now, I recommend people go out and buy Professor Dodd's books. They're a great place to to start to get to know about the politics and geopolitics of the polar regions and the scramble for the poles. They're a great primer, and as well, they go uh, very much uh, in-depth. I gave myself a crash course, which is great. Um, so thank you, and thanks again for this uh, interview. My pleasure. Thank you for asking.